0: Um, So we moved here, I don't know how many of you uh, have marked your calendar, but the Bobos have been here for five years now. It blew right by, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, clap for us, no, no, listen, that was weird. Um, We moved here to Tulsa five years ago, we moved here from Dallas, Fort Worth area, really Dallas, Um, and the first house uh, we moved into was on Riverside, down at 101st, right across the street from Jinx. Middle school. Had a great backyard. Some of you came to barbecues in our backyard. Catherine Tangren planned this awesome game. It was a great backyard. Um, the house that we eventually purchased has a terrible backyard. Um, but in that backyard, in that house, the kids hated it. Um, in the fall, it had so many trees, so much beautiful landscaping. But in the fall, we would rake. And we would rake and rake and rake. They thought they were being trained to be professional rakers. And every fall and every spring, one or more of us would come down with poison ivy. Because in this beautiful backyard right under the surface of the soil was that devil's weed, poison (laughs) ivy. And when I get poison ivy, it's not a little bit of itchy. It is commercial. It's industrial strength. It's grade A government inspected breakout of poison ivy. And I, when I get it, it's basically call the priest, come in and give me my last rites. I am ready to go see Jesus when I get poison ivy. It's terminal for me. Um, in fact, the first week or two that we were here, uh, Jonathan Friend was giving me uh, steroids to battle poison ivy already. Um, and I couldn't have I I couldn't have made it I'm here today because Jonathan friend and uh, steroids to battle poison ivy Uh, so we we weeded it we sprayed it we I mean I got the high-end stuff to kill it I would put on hazmat suits and go out and pull and dig this stuff out and you know when we lived in the house for two years when we left guess what it was still there I don't know what else will be in hell But poison ivy and mosquitoes will burn eternally. And I will rejoice. Um, There is a spiritual version of poison ivy as well. And it is in the church. It's in every church. Do you know why? It's in every heart. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. If you're a visitor here, I'm sorry to inform you. You have a dangerous weed growing in your soul and it's more than a nuisance it's deceptively dangerous to the body of Christ because it not only disrupts our fellowship in the gospel if we leave this spiritual weed unchecked it will grow rapidly and it will strangle grace by subverting the work of Christ there's an evil that we carry with us and so our diligence must be relentless and so little Christians and young theologians sit up and listen hard for the next few moments see if you can figure out what spiritual weed we need to be on the lookout for as we read Acts 15 verses 1 through 21 we're going to read that together and then I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to meet us and work in us This is the gospel of Jesus Christ from the pen of Luke. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name and with this the words of the prophets agree just as it is written after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old this is still James speaking therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, here are your hungry sheep, and here is the rich pasture of your word. Would you bid us eat our fill? Would you meet us in these moments and show us our sin, but give us our Savior? I grant that uh, we, your people, might hear, believe, and live the beauty of your word. Bless it, make it work, come and meet us again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think that's last week's water. I do that regularly. (laughs) Uh, I hope you read the quote in the bulletin uh, by uh, Professor Ben Witherington. He's one of my favorite um, commentators. Um, He says, This is the most crucial chapter in the whole book of Acts. Um, Isn't that interesting? I mean, Acts... this is for free. Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and they are both the longest books in the New Testament, and they both are equal length, and the reason is that they take up a full vellum. Um, Luke used a whole vellum to write his Gospel, and then used a whole other one. To write the, the, the work of the Spirit, the book of Acts. Um, and so he's got in two volumes, the finished work of Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit. It's redemption accomplished and redemption applied. And they were very portable. And remember he wrote them uh, for a friend named Theophilus who was sponsoring him, paying him to do the, the work, the research, to find out the truth and record and retell the story. And in this, one of the largest, the largest book in the, the New Testament, um, this is the the pivotal chapter, Acts 15. Um, so there's been in this young uh, church brewing um, something growing, this issue um, sort of bubbling beneath the surface, and here it sort of explodes. And the the question really boils down to something like. How much of the Jewish law must you keep in order to be a faithful Christian? How much law must you keep to be a Christian? It's a question of cultural boundary markers that Jesus in his earthly ministry implicitly addressed. Right? Jesus, we see him with the woman at the well. We see him in one of his, in his first sermon in his hometown that nearly gets him murdered Um, He talks about Gentiles receiving grace. He talks about grace for the unexpected. He tells parables regularly, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that that grace doesn't go where you think it goes. And that's why the religious elite eventually um, plotted to to overthrow the king. So he addresses the issue implicitly. um, uh, But Peter... Um, we saw in Acts chapter 11 explicitly. He he made it clear in that moment. He, he's had this conversation, likely with this same group of people, Peter did. Um, Paul, uh, if you read many of his letters uh, in the, the rest of the New Testament, this issue sort of is the touchpoint issue for the Christian faith as it began to grow and take root. How much... Jewish law must you keep to be a Christian. So likely it was eight years between Acts 11 and Acts 15 from when Peter uh, uh, had the, the miraculous event of the dream with Cornelius and the, the animals coming down on the sheet and and, and the, the, the Jewish leadership asks him wait, 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 we heard you had supper with Cornelius a Gentile and he's like I did man and bacon is awesome you should try shrimp it's delicious wait no you can't do that and he's like no no I can Jesus told me there was a sheep and there was pigs on it and catfish we're good to go so he he says Jesus came to save the Gentiles and the Jewish leadership says I guess he did sounds true so in that time we don't really know what Peter has done between Acts 11 and And Acts 15, but this is really, this is the final moment for Peter. We don't see him again after um, Acts 15 in this story. But he's addressing the same issue of the law and Gentiles and circumcision versus grace and faith and joy in the Lord. I couldn't find the quote, but I give you my word. Scout's honor, however we do that. I wasn't really a scout, so maybe you shouldn't believe me. I read I read this quote years ago, the first reading of *The Lord of the Rings*. Um, I believe it was on the back of a second edition, and it's a quote uh, by C. S. Lewis about his friend Tolkien's story, and it goes something like this. I searched for hours. I I did as much research looking for this quote as I did reading commentaries on the passage. But I love I love. Tolkien and Lewis, I mean, my oldest son is CS, number two is J.R.R., like, our nerd card is solid gold, (laughs) and I know this quote, and I couldn't find it, but it goes something like this, Lewis is is talking about the the truth um, that Tolkien's story displays, even though it's a fiction, and he says something like this, we in the spiritual world have seen, the darkness be defeated only to retreat and change shape and we have to face it again. Does that make sense? So he, Lewis is talking about uh, Sauron, of course. Um, how, how he's been defeated re- repeatedly in the past, but he, he changes form, he changes shape, and he shows up again. And that's where we have this situation. Heresy, evil, and confusion never stay dead. Every heresy alive and well today, the church has addressed in her history. They just change the name of it, and it trots back out and gains a lot of followers. One of the recurring evils we find in Acts and beyond is that of the party of the circumcision, a group of religious Jews, Pharisees, who had sort of converted to Christianity. They were willing to claim Christ as Messiah, but they had, along with that, rigorous expectations for themselves, and they deputized themselves to basically be the sheriffs of the church. So if you called yourself a Christian, they got to examine you and tell you you weren't good enough. They appointed themselves into this role, and they expected others to keep their rules. So why does that even matter? We have to keep this in mind as we go through Acts. Again, that Luke has written this account for Theophilus. Luke is leading us to Rome, a very non-Jewish city. And he's leading us to Rome with the promise that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone, everywhere, every when. Every when is a word. It is. The gospel is for everyone, everywhere, everywhere every win. Luke is going to prove that to us by taking us with Paul to Rome. And the strength of Luke's argument for Theophilus in Acts 15 is something like this. Imagine Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy, who's not only the senior minister that I get to work with here, he's a close and dear friend that I have learned so much from that I look up to, don't tell him this. Imagine Jeremy gets accused of heresy. And it comes out, you, the church, find out that Jeremy gets accused of heresy. What would you expect me, of me for him? Wouldn't you expect me as his co-laborer and a close friend? Wouldn't you expect me to stand up and take his side? So if I, his homeboy and trusted confidant, come out and say, He's a witch, burn him! You would go, holy cow! There's there's truth to it, right? If I'm his friend and he gets accused and I say, yeah, no, that's true, um, he's evil, you would go, oh wow, that that carries weight. There's uh, there's there must be something to the rumor. So that's what's happening in chapter 15. Theophilus, the Gentile who's coming to believe in Christ, the Hebrew Messiah might genuinely expect the jewish christian leadership at home base in jerusalem a very jewish city they theophilus the gentile might expect that the jewish leadership would side with the party of circumcision which is a a rigorous jewish party the way if you're a home football team and you would expect to get more calls or a home basketball team you you expect to get favorable treatment at home So what happens is the church courts gather in session. They listen to witnesses. They survey evidence. They deliberate matters of substance. And they render a decision. Three voices speaking in unison. And their decision is all in favor of the gospel of free grace to all mankind. And as the gavel comes down, it echoes with great joy the world over. Theophilus would have read this and his heart would have burst with joy that his Jewish elders of the church in Jerusalem said, yes, Theophilus, you can be a Christian too. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law. What you have to keep is Christ. And that's what Theophilus would have heard and read. And that's what we should hear and read as well. Paul is the first voice that declares the same message. As the chapter opens, we find men from Judea who made this ardu- arduous trip north to Antioch. It's funny that they always say they went down to Antioch. Everywhere you go from Jerusalem, they say you went, they went down to Turkey. No, you, it's north. You go out west, back east, down south, up north. But they always say they went down. Well, that's because Jerusalem is on a mountain. And so when they, anywhere they go, even if it's north, they go down to Antioch. But these guys made this long journey where the church was booming in Antioch, uh, booming and reaching both Diaspora Jews, but also reaching homegrown Gentiles. Now remember Antioch's the third largest, third most influential, very wealthy city in the Roman Empire. Um, These may be the men that Paul speaks of in Galatians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. Paul writes this. Some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's likely uh, who he's addressing these men come from Jerusalem, the party of the circumcision, trying to spy out the freedom that they have in the gospel in Antioch and enslave them again with the law of Moses. They came in saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, 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 no. That is not true. It is by grace through faith. It is by grace through faith. It is only by grace through faith that you may be saved. You don't have to cut anything off. It is by grace, through faith. Grace, not works. Faith, not law. And as Luke retells this story um, <clears throat> in Acts 15, um, he lightens the drama. He smooths out the, the battle. Uh, he writes it in a Greco-Roman letter writing. Uh, way, So Paul frames mo- much of his epistles in this uh, Roman style, this Greek style of letter writing. Um, Luke does that here because it's for Theophilus. And so when he, you'll notice if you get an ear for it, you'll pick up on these phrases. But he says, they had no small dissension and debate. Uh, Tiffany and I will frequently have no small dissension and debate as it comes to where the dishes go or whatever the stupid things we fight about in marriage but that's the uh that's the coded uh language it's basically the old southern insult of oh bless your heart oh did you run into a parked car bless your heart they had no small dissension and debate he's saying they fought like tigers they went to the mattresses over this this was Fire every bullet, throw every grenade, leave nothing unargued, because the gospel is worth fighting for. He says he wishes in uh, chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 12, uh, as, as carefully as Luke phrases the thing, Paul says this, I wish they would emasculate themselves. If they're so enamored with circumcision, cut the whole thing off and get it over with. Paul doesn't argue like Luke. Paul skips to the end. Not quite as polished. Um, Since the church in Antioch can't seem to find an official resolution to this doctrinal difficulty, they elect Paul, Barnabas, and some unnamed other brothers um, to go to Jerusalem to get a final ruling. And as they travel south to Jerusalem, they stop through towns in Phoenicia and Samaria sharing testimonies of how God is at work among the nations. And, and I love that Luke takes the point to say, and all the brothers were joyed. They were overjoyed. They, they rejoiced in these words of testimony. Now, you've got to skip back to Acts 1, where we hear that these men and women are going to be sent out, and the gospel will go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, last week, Jeremy, in chapter 14, preached that the gospel had gone to the ends of the earth and now it's going back down like it's gone out and it's coming back to jerusalem so that's the retracing of the steps that that promise has been fulfilled it's gone out and people are hearing even gentiles are hearing that the the gospel is being embraced by non-jewish people and their hearts are exploding with joy and then they make it to jerusalem they're welcomed by the church by The apostles and the elders, but notice who's there. The poison ivy is there. It's an international issue. The party of the Pharisees declaring the same truncated, empty gospel of man's self-sufficiency. They're saying they must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. It's heresy. It's vile. It has to be defeated. In many respects, this is helpful this is how our Presbyterian governmental structure works. Locally, Christ Pres is led by teaching elders, myself and Jeremy, and ruling elders like Bruce and Scott and Matt and Chris and James and Robert and Felix. Am I missing anybody? If I missed you, it's not because I don't love you. Uh, ruling elders and teaching elders, and that in our local church setting is called the session. And our session at CPC meets monthly, and what we do is we pray for you, we pray for particular concerns, we talk about the issues that our church is facing, and things we need to be aware of, we strategize of what's next for us, what do we need to do, and what can we work on, and we also pastor one another, we, we share our own particular sins and, and trials. Um, so we meet monthly that way. Um, notice back in chapter 14, verse 23, when Paul and Barnabas, as they're traveling in that first missionary movement, every time they establish a local church in a new town, chapter 14, verse 23, they appoint elders. Because Paul was obviously Presbyterian. The Greek word elder is presbyteros. So we're presbyterian because we hold to elders Um, in our session meetings we take copious notes and we submit them regularly to our region which is our presbytery so you have a session and then around that you have all of the sessions in Oklahoma in northwest Arkansas and in southwest Missouri that is our presbytery your presbytery is hills and plains um, I wanted to name it Rocks Hills and Plains, but we didn't um, and we meet basically quarterly although we we meet three times a year. Um, our, our presbytery meets to pray for the churches, to talk about the RUFs that we support, to talk about where we want to plant a new church, uh, like Springfield is on the list. We interview men that come to pastor churches, like we did Peter Johnson, who's the new minister in Bartlesville at our church there. We we do that as a presbytery. We we argue about things, and we rule on matters at a local level. Um, I'm sorry, at a regional level. So you have a session, then a presbytery, and uh, so we meet monthly, quarterly. Now, annually, all the presbyteries get together, and that is our general assembly. Uh, we had that three weeks ago. James, Chris, myself, and Jeremy went. It was in Dallas. It, it moves uh, city to city, but we, we deliberate. There is no small dissension among them. Um, but we, we hear about our ministries around the world, our ministries at home and abroad, and we decide... On overtures that make it that far. Okay, so that's kind of helpful to know. Many of you are checked out and that's fine. Acts 15, in, uh, in a sense, is the initial general assembly of the church. The earliest PCA church is there in Acts 15. <clears throat> so there are really only three forms of church governance. I'm, I promise you this is helpful. There's the, so the, the Greek word uh, for bishop is episkopos. So you have an Episcopal form of governance which is your Roman Catholic, your Orthodox, um, your Episcopal, um, um, Methodist. Anything that has a bishop um, is an Episcopal form of governance. And then you have the Congregational form where every member votes on everything and the majority wins. That's your Baptist churches, your Bible churches, many non-denominational churches, churches of Christ. Um, That is... The inmates running the asylum. Um, You can't be trusted. Look, I'm not saying it. The Bible says you people wanted to go back to Egypt, okay? (laughs) You're worried about leeks and onions. I'm telling you, there's a promised land. Follow me. Um, that's the third form is presbyteros, Presbyterian, elder-led. And that's where you find most reformed denominations. In, in our form of governance, there is both plurality, there's numerous voices. The elders have the same vote that I do. It's one. My vote counts the same as Tim Keller's vote. He just gets one vote. So there's plurality, but there's also parity. We, we don't have a bishop. And that is exactly what we see In Acts 15 if you look through it again, there's plurality and there's parity. now James speaks as The moderator so to speak as someone who is appointed in a role of leadership, but his vote Counts along with everyone else's as one vote Paul the most accomplished missionary preacher leader and writer in church history doesn't render the decision himself Peter And the rest of the apostles, the men who lived and ministered alongside the Lord Jesus, they don't regulate the future direction of the church themselves. The elders, they don't either. Not even James, the earthly brother of Jesus, makes decisions unilaterally. These men, all in conjunction and cooperation, set the course for the church. And so look with me really quickly at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, turn the page and look over at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They function collectively, not singularly. So Paul says that Peter, verse 7, there's much debate. Peter stands to speak and. What he says is right in line with Paul, and it mirrors his speech to this same body eight years before in Acts 11. He says, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did us, and he made no distinction between us and them. So there are actually two options for attaining salvation. The first option is to be perfectly holy to be perfectly just and good, to meet and exceed every expectation of God's law without a single misfire. That's your first option. Complete and total self-righteousness. Now the largest difficulty you will face should you head down that road, should you choose that route, is that you're actually born in sin. You're coated in it. And, and what's worse, it's seeped in. It seeped into your genetic structure, and even all the way down at the molecular level, you are sinful. So it's going to be really hard for you to be perfectly self-righteous. You can try that option, but just be aware that only one person has made it to the end of that road. You should expect to be really, really tired, really worn out, chewed up if you climb under the yoke and try and plow that field. Which is actually the point of the law. In the first place, it was given that we might wear ourselves out, that we might find ourselves in the dust, dying of hunger, thirsty for water. And so the second option is the one that I would commend to you. Uh, Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly of heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Once you've tried the law, tried to measure up, once you've emptied your tank to be better than those around you, then and only then will you know just how good rest sounds. Now, under the yoke of Christ, we enjoy all the benefits of his perfection, his joy, his labor, his salvation. We, we, we enjoy all that by the strength of his grace alone. That he, he drags us along in his labor and accomplishes everything asked of us. That's the better way of salvation. You can either tote your own yoke and not make it. Or you can climb under the yoke of Christ, which is easy. Peter makes that argument. Why? Why? Why, are you, why are you giving them a yoke that you haven't been able to keep? Our fathers couldn't keep it. Why are you giving them that yoke? So um, if a girl, I have two girls in my house, Tiffany and Shaylee. Shaylee is a little princess, so she thinks. And when she ever comes up to me and says, Oh, Dad, smell this. I expect it to be perfume. It's it's this beautiful aroma of a candle or some form of incense. It's going to smell good when a girl comes up to you and says, oh, smell this. But I also have three boys in my house. And if a boy says, ooh, smell this, <laughs> it rarely ends well. It's usually rancid, sour, spoiled. It's funkier than Limburger. I don't know how we got that Reputation, but it's stuck that, oh, this smells awful, smell it. And dudes are like, oh, yeah, you're right, that's horrible. Oh, man, this is gross, you should try it. That starts in junior high, I think, and it doesn't end, at least at 41, it doesn't end. And that's the mentality regarding the law that discusses Peter. The the yoke of the law reeks. Quit having it be passed down to people. It's terrible. This is awful. Quit handing it to our new brothers and sisters. Stop trying to make everyone else share this poison. It's weighed us down. Lift it off. So Peter's voice matches Paul's. And then we have James. The assembly, it says, fell silent, at which point Paul and Barnabas recount their adventures from their missionary journey And the Lord's mercy to bring in the nations. And then James takes the floor. He uses the name Simeon for Peter, his Hebrew name. And he uses his experience with Cornelius at Caesarea and the Gentile Pentecost. And there's beauty in the Greek here as well. In the Greek Old Testament, ethne is translated nations. You you can hear that, right? Ethnic groups nations ethne is the greek word for nations and it's also the greek word for gentiles and so the passage that jeremy or that ethan read for us um, was it out of amos Um, that's what's quoted in acts 15 Um, and in his quotation of amos james doesn't say nations he says gentiles he's He's translating it differently, although it can mean either nations or Gentiles. James makes it a point to say, these people belong to the Lord. This is good and true. Um, And Laos, L-A-O-S, is translated people, God's people, Israel, in a sense. So when James says, God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, There's power in that. He's agreeing, James is, with what Paul has said and what Peter has said, that if any are saved, it's by God's grace and not through God's law, and not even through grace and law, because grace and is not grace at all. So the borders have now been tremendously expanded in the gospel so that God's people come not just from Israel but from all the nations. And Christ alone is a doctrine that must be maintained above all others. But there are cultural recommendations um, that we should adopt and abide by for the peace and purity of the church. James gives that list here in a sense. The, for the Christian Gentiles, James lists four particular issues that had been a constant feature of the culture that they're now Expected to refrain from that's how our passage ended this morning idolatry and immorality are two of the most pervasive sins that we've been redeemed from and then he includes these dietary restrictions of not eating things that are strangled or blood. That's difficult to make sense of those things, but the thrust is towards being culturally aware of your surroundings and living in a way that doesn't cause someone any undue hindrance to coming to faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. So when you think about the bar that was set for them at circumcision, James and the rest of the leaders have sort of kicked that down and said, look, all you need is Jesus, and and You need to give up on idolatry, immorality. And look, as you live as a Gentile Christian in a place where Jewish people are hearing of Christ, don't eat things that are strangled that shouldn't be that hard and don't drink blood because that's weird and you don't need to do that. So those are the expectations now that he gives them. Unlike the claims of the party of the circumcision, these expectations are not what saves a person But meeting them is the outworking of that salvation. That distinction must be made and it must be insisted upon. And so here's where we find ourselves now. The church has struggled to grow in Jerusalem due to persecution. The church is struggling to grow in the western world today too, right? Even in Tulsa. Um, This is now a post-Christian society. Meanwhile, it's exploding in growth in Antioch and beyond and... Just like today, the church is exploding in growth in sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, in Asia. I've heard many concerned voices, though, Western voices, American voices, expressing despair about the state of the church, about the state of Christianity. And brothers and sisters, we cannot yield to that fear. Just because we're losing influence in America is no reason for us to come unglued. Christ has promised to establish his church. He gave his life to do it, and he says the gates of hell won't overtake it. We might be losing influence in America, but to think that that because of that the church is failing is short-sighted, and it's arrogant, and it has no place in biblical Christianity. In a real sense, it's as if today's circumcision party expects the worldwide converts to christianity to share not just in our christ but in our american sensibilities and our cultural preferences in our governmental structures the church is bigger than the usa jesus is better than any president and he will do all that is good holy wise just beautiful and and good for his church i promise you that it might fail here It failed in Jerusalem. The Middle East is now a hotbed for a a very different religion than Christianity. It failed in Europe. It failed in Italy. It failed in Germany. It failed in England. It's failing in America. God is on the throne. He will build His church. All we can do is be faithful where He puts us to, to preach and live A gospel of grace I can't tell you where it will settle next and I am certainly not looking for the forward to my kids growing up in a post-christian America I'm not happy about it but I do believe that God is still at work he is still establishing his people and Satan won't win so what will the year 4,000 look like the Jetsons probably that's too that's too old a reference for our ruf kid um, but it'll look like flying cars. It'll look like uh, internet in the brain. I don't know what it'll look like. Four th- the year 4000. Space travel? I hope so. Socks that stay together in the dryer. Can you imagine what 2,000 years from now will look like? It's hard. The meeting in Acts 15 took place sometime in the middle of the first century, 2,000 years ago. It took place 2,000 years removed from the time of Abraham. Do you know what Abraham, what the Jerusalem Council, and us, do you know what we have in common? We all live in a time where God is at work by grace, by grace alone. Bringing the nations to himself by faith alone, in Christ alone. And us speaking in unison, we must receive this word, this word of a world challenging message. We must receive it and relay it again and again so that in the year 4019, Christ Presbyterian Church or some iteration thereof, Christ is proclaimed, Christ is lived, little babies are baptized. Marriages are redeemed. I don't know what it'll look like, but the gospel has fruit in it. God is at work. He's never not at work. And so here are two complementary challenges I want to leave us with. Number one, the noxious weed of Jesus and will come up from time to time. And it must be rooted out. Fight like the men in Acts 15 to declare that Christ and Christ alone is enough. If we allow anything to pair up with him for our salvation, then we've weakened the claim of the gospel. So fight, that's the first challenge. Fight, fight the weed, kill the poison ivy. And the second point is this, don't fight about everything. A whole lot of what we get to quote Bruce Randall caught up in our shorts about just doesn't matter. Most of what we fight about doesn't matter eternally. One of the best living theologians is a, a man by the name of John Frame. And so here's your second complimentary challenge to fight. Is this week, look up his article. You can, you can uh, search it on whatever search engine you choose. Um, but it's called Machen's Warrior Children. Fight, but don't fight about everything. Read Machen's Warrior Children. I promise you, you will glean from it that we need to fight but not fight about everything. We, just like the earliest Christians, we need God's wisdom, and we need God's careful grace to live faithfully and consistently wherever He sets us. And so let's seek the Lord's face that we might walk in His ways and glorify Him. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this beautiful picture of your tireless work to redeem the world for your own glory. We thank you that it is Christ and him alone that provides for us, that there is nothing left for us to do except receive and rest on him as he has offered to us in the gospel. We pray for a clear vision of a consistent Christ who holds us confidently. We pray that your church would be built up both here and abroad, that you would both uh, soften our hearts to the world, to our brothers and sisters of different denominations, but you'd soften our hearts to those that are coming into the church. We might be gentle and careful with them as you've been with us. Would you be kind and gracious and provide a wind of refreshment and revival even at a time where it seems like the church is dying in America and in the West? Would you surprise us by bringing new faithful Christians into the fold? Would you provide new brothers and sisters for us that we might rejoice in the time that you give us? But whether you do famine or feast, meet us with difficulty, meet us with blessing, may you Meet us. Meet us and encourage us in faithfulness wherever you have us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.